0: Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Silas. Welcome back guys to another great episode we've got scheduled for you this week. For the guys tuning in once again, thank you very much for your continued support. It's always appreciated. Um, For anyone who's new here, hello and welcome. This this podcast is aimed at providing individuals working from the tactical setting, information from leaders within organization, as well as in research as well, to help drive best practice. So saying that I hope the show makes you think, gives you maybe a little bit of a different perspective. You take something away from the show generally as well. As I say each week, you know we don't run ads on the show here. It's very much an organically grown word of mouth show. So I just want to say you know if you value the show, if you get something from it, then please please share it out amongst your network, tell people about you know within the performance space. So we continue to grow this podcast and get the message out to a lot more people. It really helped to push on the tactical industry as well. As I say, guys, I try and bring you guys an interesting guest every single show, and this week is no different. Uh, my guest this week is Mark White, who is an operational physiologist. Uh, before we dive into who Mark is a little bit more, just as we typically do, just a disclaimer here: just want to say that today's episode, the views and opinions expressed are those of Mark White and Mark White alone, and do not represent those of the Department of Defense or United States Air Force. Now, give you a little bit of background on Mark. So Mark is a subject matter expert providing support in human performance topics relating from respiratory exercise physiology, aerospace and operational physiology, as well as military operational performance. He's held a number of positions over the years from, from providing advisory support to the Office of Naval Research, uh, Expeditionary Maneuvers War Resilience Programme, and uh, Human Performance Research Manager for the U.S. Air Force Special Operations Command uh, under the Command Surgeon's Office, as well as this has also been a a research respiratory physiologist from the Air Force Research Laboratory amongst numerous other posts. Over a decorated 20-year career, Mark's professional background spanned every spectrum from work-related physical ability testing, applications of occupational physiology, and collegiate coursework curriculum and instructional development. So in today's episode, me and Mark sit down and chat about how he's assisting organizations address operational gaps, how he's influencing standard operating procedures within human development, and how he's also helping to prepare candidates for Arduous Pipelines. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Mark. John, thank you for having me. No problem, Mark. Always a pleasure to have you on, mate. Really looking forward to sitting down and chatting to you. Before we get into that, I just want to say a quick shout out to Mark Abel so thank you so much for putting us both in touch mark you're a great guy and you're doing some great work in kentucky so thank you
1: one of my favorite mentors he's on my dissertation
0: oh fantastic dude fantastic so how long have you known mark for
1: about three years okay so we met at uh, at rocky mountain university of health professions he was a tactical strength and conditioning course instructor and so it was wonderful having him walk into that class. Um, I don't believe that they had actually had that class, or it was a new class, I believe. But uh, it was interesting, right? So I'm, I'm the oldest doctoral student at Rocky Mountain University Health Professions, and you know, so I'm I'm older or probably the same age as all of the professors. And uh, what a pleasure it was to actually have him come into the class, and give us perspectives on firefighters and you know because he had done it yeah,
0: you know, as an exercise physiologist. Oh, that's cool, mate, that's cool. I mean, obviously from the UK, Rogman University we've heard a lot of good things I've seen come out of there as well with regards to research, which is really cool. So obviously, Mark, I me and you have had the opportunity to chat a fair bit just about, you know, career in that uh, offline, uh, off air. Um, For anyone who hasn't come across you, Mark, and the work you're currently doing, please you just tell us where your career started out? Where you're going Absolutely, John. Thanks for asking. So it's a
1: it's a sorted past, right? I, I had the advice of a mother going into college, and it was find something you like to do, right? Find something you're interested in, and from there you'll you'll find a way to make a living. Now, so I didn't start out with physical education off the bat. Right? We didn't have exercise science in those days, John. It was a physical education uh, degree. I started out with criminal justice, architecture, construction management, um, and really all of it was to help people. I didn't realize it at the time, but that was kind of the intent of each one of those jobs is to try and build and make something better. But internally, intrinsically, uh, when I started working out more beyond high school, um, I realized that physical education and the investment I was get, making into my body and what I was getting out of it really made me feel good. And I wanted to actually give back to people. And so that's what kind of led me over to the Department of Physical Education and then a, an exercise science degree finally. And so, you know, after my undergraduate work, I went out and I worked a little bit, actually, you know, did some database stuff. Right, because mm-hmm. exercise, science, and physical education really didn't exist in the US as it does now as an industry. It was mainly teaching in schools or cardiac rehab. And I really found that the, the healthcare side of what my degree allowed me into an industry, it wasn't fulfilling. I really felt bad for the people that I was trying to help because quite honestly, they'd already had. Open heart surgery. And right, they were just trying to get back to normal again. And it was wonderful, but there was that internal prevention side of me that wasn't being fulfilled. And it's like, God, how could we have stopped this from happening? And it's like, oh, you know, there's actually a, an answer to that. and It's called, you know, working out, nutrition, sleep, and all those things that exercise science is now trying to impart upon us socially. So that led me to a master's degree. So during that time frame, I started to actually get just a hint of the tactical occupational type of intervention that I could play as a role and a position in an organization. So after my um, graduate degree, which it was, it was the focus for my thesis was creatine supplementation and track cyclists, mm-hmm. um, and it was using the windgate test, and those guys just ate that up. It was wonderful though really loved research and really loved problem solving. That led me though into a really unique situation at the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, where I actually got to be at a higher headquarters level, department physical fitness coordinator for all of the state of California's wildland firefighters. What was really interesting is that I found that I had a new and different role within an industry that I never thought that I could actually play a role in. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of this position came out of a California OSHA, or Occupational Safety Health Administration special order joint. And that federal to state level organization basically saw an accident that occurred on duty. And it was the main function or I should say the main function that the job played came out of what they found in this mishap and that these three firefighters really were not fit enough to outrun the fire Okay. it was unfortunate everybody perished they had third degree burns within a few days of of the incident um, they all passed and it was a very unfortunate situation and I say that because hindsight's always 2020. Woulda, shoulda, coulda. I wish I had instituted this program sooner. So my mentor was named Mike Catlin, and we had a physical ability test. And I had never learned about physical ability testing past scores or in our country, they call it the employee uniform guideline for employee selection procedures, which basically allows us to set up these minimum standards for you to do these physical demanding jobs for these tactical operators as we call it now. What a wonderful, fulfilling job. So at that point, I really thought I had found a home but the unfortunate side of the politics is that the labor unions really didn't want that type of oversight at that time. And so the importance of physical fitness and what I would say the practice of exercise science from a prevention standpoint inside of an industry that is riddled with really high risk, it wasn't well recognized. And so I eventually resigned and found myself doing data work and prevention work at, at insurance companies. Found a, a, a job and then decided I wanted to go back, back to school. So I, I got into a doctoral program at Ohio State University. And uh, the unfortunate side then is that uh, 9-11, and all of a sudden, I found myself not desiring a PhD at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody had attacked my country. I wanted to retaliate. I wanted to be part of the team. I wanted to go fix what was wrong. I didn't know how to do it. And so unfortunately, it took me a number of years to read back to myself, but in In 2008, after owning a business, and working in the insurance industry a little longer, I found myself at the precipice of the most fulfilling part of my job history, which was gaining a commission into our United States Air Force as an aerospace and operational physiologist. Spent five years at a wonderful organization within the Air Force. It's called Armstrong Research Laboratories and the United States Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine. and So we did research. It was called human performance, but not really, right? Because at that time, tactical performance and operators, really that idea hadn't been developed. It was more prevention-based. I don't want pilots to die due to hypoxic hypoxia or due to pulling Gs, which is called stagnant. So our curriculum and my mission was based on things that we learned out of World War II and then pushed forward throughout the Cold War and into our current operations. And so then you saw, that's really where I delved into the military. And then I've continued that on after I exited the military in 2013 uh, into being a DOD contractor and supporting human performance initiatives both from a science and technology standpoint, as well as an operations and maintenance or management standpoint.
0: Yeah, that's quite some career path. And I mean, what was that like for you then, Mark, the initial for into working with, you know, the occupational performance side of things with the, the firefighters over in California, was that was it a pretty steep learning curve there for you or was it um, more of a case of having your own program to set up with regards to what they already had in place Good question, John. Right, because they don't
1: teach you that, or at least when I went to school, we didn't have classes designed around. Them. Our classes were based on healthcare, right? That was the focus. And then it eventually became sports and performance, right? And that industry took off with hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts. What I had to do though is I had to take my knowledge set and apply it. Right. So what I had to do is be open to learning the problems of somebody else. Yeah. Right. What was your job like? So I had to ask questions. Quite honestly, the people that fail in the tactical environment, or I would just say in general, in industries or in their positions, they walk in as if they have these 10 commandments, right? I have the truth stamped in on what I know, and I'm going to make everybody better. And it's like... Mm you know, maybe you should walk into this setting and and palms kind of open and, well, how can I help? Teach me about what you do. And as you're learning about their job, you start to realize, oh, this is where applied physiology comes into play. And so, right, blood pressure. We knew for years, post-World War II, pulling Gs, especially on how we designed our aircraft, it stopped blood from going to the head. Mm -hmm. Back on the stick, Airplane does this. All of a sudden, blood does this, and it pools down your abdominal cavity. And so then, you know, if I was open to understanding what their job was like, the equipment—it's kind of like a human factors model—the equipment that they had, right, the environment that they were in, and the limitations of their body—all of a sudden, I became an asset to them, and I almost became this kind of tactical coach. It's like, look, I'm not going to teach you how to play or. to plan your, your your environment, right? You have pilot instructors or instructor pilots that will teach you the tactics of flying, and dogfighting. I'm the strength and conditioning coach. That's not gonna teach you how to be a better football player, but I'll give you your physical abilities to be that better football player. And then the tactical technicians, they're gonna teach you how to be a better football player or a better fighter pilot. So that's how I had to approach it. And I didn't learn that during the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, the wildland firefighter work that I did. I learned it in the military. And it was because they told me to sit down and shut up and listen and learn. <laughs> so they, we had some great instruction.
0: That's interesting to hear there, Mark. And it's a, it's a common thread I've heard a lot from a lot of our guests on here who obviously yourself had that successful um, career path within the tactical environment have gone in with ears open and their mouth shut and just learning what's going on within the environment and what they actually want from you and how you can help them do the job better rather than walking in and being like you guys know nothing I'm here with the solution that you've been looking for you didn't even know you had you know um, and it's the same you mentioned there about the pilots and just that humility of saying look I'm not teaching you to be a bare pilot, I'm just equipping you with the physical capabilities you need. And it's, it's similar conversations I've had with athletes and coaches across different sports. I like always liken it to a car. It's like, look, I can I can reinforce the chassis, I can upgrade the engine, but you need to learn how to drive it and your coach needs to show you how to drive this car better. That's it.
1: It's funny you mentioned the car. I, over the years, right, you can see it with all the gray hair and stuff, I'm old, right? I have this analogy that I've tried to, I guess, impart my knowledge to other people, but not trying to make them physiologists. And the analogy is, right, we have this tool that was given to us. It's called a body, (laughs) right? And it's original equipment from the manufacturer. It's OEM. Nature produced it. Now we can try and create aftermarket products to integrate into the body. And science fiction will tell you, oh, it's better, right? But, yeah, it's there are always pros and cons and downsides to it. And so even in my, my business, when I owned a health and fitness center, one of the state-of-the-art health and fitness centers, I had about an hour that I would sit down with the clients, John, and I would talk to them and I would I'd give them this analogy that said, hey, you know, somebody probably taught you how to use a hammer. Somebody taught you how to use a tool, you know, a saw or a, a screwdriver. But who taught you how to use your body? And I'd get this kind of stare, like, I understand what Mark's saying, but I really still don't get where he's going with this. Uh-huh. It's like, look, you got to take care of your body just like you take care of your car, right? Engineers designed your car for a specific function, and there was a whole bunch of probably trial and error in the design of that vehicle. But if you fail to take care of it, like you don't change the, oil, you don't check the tire pressure, eventually those systems are gonna fail and then you're gonna try and go back and fix it. But it's not the same as it was when it came down to the factory floor. I love that analogy though, that that you use for the car because it's it's really applicable one. Prevention, 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 prevention
0: that's the thing i always try and just link things over with that it always seems to be cars and horses i'll always come up with so cars i was in there and with regards to athletes or just people in general i always say that some people are race horses and some people are Clydesdale that's it You know, some people can deal with a lot they don't go as fast whereas some people can go super fast but they can't deal with that much so. right
1: and it's not a good or a bad horse
0: mm-hmm. it's a how am i going to use it <laughs> exactly exactly buddy So obviously you're highlighting there, Mark, you know, you finished up um, your your service within the Air Force back in 2013. You made the move over to the Department of Defense. Can you just talk to us a little bit now around, you know, what uh, your current role is and how you're helping within the Department of Defense?
1: So I'll say this, right? Within our Department of Defense, and I suspect it's gonna be the same for any military organization throughout the world. We don't know how human performance optimization can help us. When I say that, that is a massive umbrella it's a gross generalization, big broad stroke kind of paintbrush. What do I mean by that? We understand from an industry perspective, how human performance optimization can help the sports industry, the entertainment industry. And we have leveraged the heck out of that to make these athletes the biological specimens that they are, right? And so they're taking all of their biomotor abilities through our strength and conditioning, and they're applying them to their performance in whatever sporting activity that they're doing, and they're excelling. Mm -hmm. Why haven't we done that to our military operators? I don't know. I mean, I do, but I don't. Because the logic seems simple. And so, what I do as a DOD contractor is I'm helping. burgeoning birth of human performance optimization grow within the organization so without giving out too much details realize that we have science and technology and we try and leverage that to introduce new ideas into operations Mm -hmm. because i don't have an internal structure that allows for acquisition of knowledge and technologies easily right How do I I acquire new guns in the army? Hey man, that's easy. They figured that out. There's an acquisition process. How do I acquire human performance optimization, technology and knowledge products into the military? I don't have a direct acquisition pathway. So what I do as a contractor, is I provide scientific and technical advisory support to those organizations that are kind of creating this opportunity and you'll notice in my posts if you're on linkedin i just say look right now we need somebody to come out and be brave enough to sign on the dotted line Mm -hmm. that here's our black line item money and we're investing in this so we it's not red line money which means that maybe it's there next year maybe it's not we just don't know we're going to create a program of record that's going to have a direct funding pathway that has the very fundamental beginnings of positions that will grow beyond that. Mm -hmm. So I try and support that however I can in a contract position, but also in my own business as SAR Human Performance, where I I give education and training um, to those people within organizations like academia or industry that don't understand the human performance optimization venue. And it's like, you need to learn how to leverage S&T to o or science and technology to operations and maintenance mm-hmm. kind of uh,
0: That's an interesting oversight there, Mark. And I mean, obviously we've seen a huge explosion like in the US it's been going for a lot longer with regards to just the, the tactical performance side and looking after those on the ground, you know, obviously, because organizations are investing a lot of money within their people to train them up. And then just seeing people break and get pushed to the sidelines is, it's tough. And just not, from a business perspective, it's not good business as well. And um, obviously you come in as an advisor, because obviously we've seen a lot of changes, a lot of uh, performance teams put around guys now, especially at the special operations level. From your overview, what are you seeing as like, operational gaps within organizations and how you, how you work and to plug those gaps?
1: So the first gap that I see, the most critical one, and I suspect again, it's gonna be the same for, for all indoctrination level military organizations. In the US, we have to say as that, you know, 1% of our population serves in the military. And so we in the military, or at least when I was active duty, we inherit the good and the bad from our society. Right now, in our culture, we don't have true levels of fitness being indoctrinated into our youth. When I went to high school, and this was only a few decades ago, John, it was mandatory that we had four years of physical education. Mm-hmm. We had to dress down, there was a uniform, we did push ups and sit ups. There's a thing called the Presidential Physical Fitness Campaign that was established by John F. Kennedy, which hindsight, with all of my years of experience, I look at that and say, boy, that was the best military recruitment program I have ever seen, right? I wanna make our youth healthy and fit for the 1% that do go in. And for the 99% that don't, right? They can contribute even more So our society and culture, but we have gone away from that. And all of a sudden, right, in the past decade or so, you see papers being published. Oh, people are being broken in the military. We have this huge number of musculoskeletal injuries in the military. We must be doing something wrong. Are you sure? Or have you inherited somebody that spent the last four years at the formative years, four or five years, depending on your your education system structure, right? Lacking physical exertion. And now you've inherited them. You've taken them in, and you have applied the same type of stress that we've been applying for decades Mm -hmm. in our indoctrination pipeline, and now they're breaking. Well, it's because they didn't have any adaptation. They didn't create any resilience. That's the biggest gap. Getting people to understand, from an organizational level, that you have inherited some really good things and some bad things from those people that you are indoctrinating into your organization. So, how do you address that sooner? Right. And special operations is a little further down the road. Right. It's kind of like uh, pee wee football in, in the U.S. I'm gonna. Two hand touch, flag football, you're at 10 years old, you know, no, you're not going to do tackle football. That's a little bit later. And then, you know, high school level, you don't get directly indoctrinated into the NFL ranks. You have to earn that, Mm -hmm. right? And that takes time and experience. And so for special operation forces, that just takes a, a little bit of time and maturity. But you can imagine that that is a life cycle. We've got time as a denominator here on the x axis. And so from the very beginning, how you start that foundation sets up every other success or failure from that point forward. And so I just take that gap analysis type of situation, John, and apply that to all the other uh, military organization progressions and and it's the same thing.
0: Nice. Uh, Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree just that change in overall physical culture as the decades have gone on um obviously you're touching upon john f kennedy's um you know presidential physical fitness uh, process there and it was just like i don't know if you've seen the, the documentary the motivational factor about la sierra no well that's going to be good I, i'll look forward to it. It, it it's a it's a fantastic documentary just obviously from um i think I believe it's the 50s and 60s into there with the, the high school program uh, the physical status of these young men, and women—you just look like, geez. Like most of these would cream most adult athletes I know nowadays from a recreational standpoint. But just the ability from just basic calisthenics, just to move, you know, well, and that application as well into the academic study as well was just huge. And like you say, what great uh, recruiting pathway if you went from the military perspective with them. But yeah, that has changed drastically from a physical education, physical activity perspective for guys who are coming into that sort of military pipeline now as well. You know, and
1: I, I look at it kind of altruistically, hindsight being twenty twenty, as I'm getting older, what an unfortunate set of circumstances we've created by eliminating the one thing topic, physical education, I'm just gonna call it that, but the one thing that we would introduce to our youth, teaching them about their body, right, from a biological, physiological, health, and fitness level, and we've eliminated. We've set them up for failure. Mm-hmm. We have set them up for. What I would term a lack of autonomy, right? I wanted to create a, a fitness club a while ago, and I wanted to call it Independent Fitness. You know, what if? What if I could give you all the tools necessary to where you needed less healthcare and you were independently healthy? You didn't rely on other people. And I even asked this question during my uh, interview when I owned a gym or a fitness center to to people. I'd ask them right off the bat, who's responsible for your health? What do you think most people's responses were?
0: I'm guessing they'd probably externalize and be like, oh, it's my doctor or the healthcare system is responsible for my health.
1: It was it was always the external. Oh, it's the doctor. No, no. No, no, no. That doctor doesn't go home with you at the end of the day. Neither does the nurse, right? Your body goes home with you. You have direct oversight as to what you do and how you do it with this tool that was bestowed upon us from the original equipment from the manufacturer. So I I feel like it's an unfortunate set of circumstances that we find ourselves in, because we call this an epidemic, right? It's growing obesity. It's like, "There's there's a solution for it, right? Put these down and get out and move. Quit eating industrialized food, sleep, drink water, not Coke, right? Or cola, but there are very basic fundamental things that we could do. And all of that would be introduced to our young and should be exemplified, as exemplified in the home. Granted, mm-hmm. I don't have kids, so, so so I'm not gonna tell parents how to raise the children, right? But, but right, just being in the outside or looking in, I, I really wish that we could. We're in the Titanic, a little bit quicker with regards to how we introduce our young to taking care of themselves and in turn, right, preparing themselves for futures in these types of uh, tactical positions if they want to go that route yep. because they're so early underprepared when they're being indoctrinated at 18, 19, 20 years of age.
0: And it's a, it's a tough one. Um obviously the change within common culture and that like as you say people have outsourced their their health care it's like well it's not my responsibility it's, it's the doctor's responsibility the nurse's responsibility these sort of things and as we were chatting before we came on the show here about the, the quick fix of gratification of social media and that showing that everything is you know it's a simple click away and we've gone into that habit i think from what i can see of societal being like oh well I would love to be healthy, but I don't want to be inconvenienced by changing up my diet, sleeping more, exercising more. I'm sure there's just a simple pill I could take, and that will be me sorted. So,
1: right? This is where we get into, I guess, philosophical debates. Yeah. And this is the banter of it. John, is did anybody tell you that life was going to be easy? did anybody say that you don't have to earn anything and things are just going to be given to you?
0: Nope.
1: Yeah. As a physicist, a chemist, a biologist, right? I I mean, let's even just go back and look at life on the Serengeti desert. It's hard. Everything is hard and you have to earn it. You have to put energy into whatever it is you do and you get something back from it. That's how energy flows. There's a sinusoidal wave. We measure stuff. There's positives. There's negatives. Nothing comes for free. Nothing just flows to you. You don't walk into a gym and through osmosis, you gain hypertrophy, and aerobic capacity. It just happens, right? You have to put some energy into it to get something back from it. And really, this is where I would even say when I was younger, Joe. I just I had this analogy about the tool that I've already told you about. And I used to say, hey, from the neck down, I can make you a, a Greek god or goddess. I can make you a machine. From the neck up, I don't care. Because I have no control over it. I can't give you a pill and motivate you. If I could, then I'd probably be the, the richest man in the world, but I'd also be a narcotic stealer, too. So the motivation, the behavior. The operant conditioning. Now I look back, hindsight, and go, these are key things. We have ignored the brain for a long time. And this is an integrated system. This being the human physiological system. We have to get back to what motivates people. And quite honestly, if you can give somebody intrinsic value, self-efficacy, right? all of a sudden that changes everything from within to what they do out. And so now people start to care about themselves a little more, whether it's so they can serve as a police officer, protect and serve their community, healthcare workers, and they can stay up longer, The more fit, they, right? They, they can have longer shifts. It doesn't really matter, right? It's all applicable socially
0: definitely definitely and i mean it's it's a, it's a bit of a struggle from both perspectives how you approach it so like how do you change people's self efficacy especially now that as we've already said like a lot of life is just for a lot of people is instant gratification or the messages things come quickly and easily you don't have to worry too much about working too hard so that's a tough one and how do you mark within your role then Obviously, we were touching on earlier about those gaps within organizations you're highlighting. Of you know, what's co- the product coming through the front door is not the same product as it was 20, 30 years ago from that physical standpoint. There. So, how are you promoting that within organizational structure? It'd be like, right, how do we manage these people better through the pipeline, whether it be basic pipeline or if it's that special operations pipeline as well, which is obviously gonna be a lot more demand for them on the body, especially if they're not up to the physical requirements initially. So working in the
1: insurance industry gave me a different perspective on business, right? And I under—I I had to learn what the industry was. I found out that there was a return on investment, right? And I was a prevention specialist. And we did physical ability testing for, I'm going to say, organizations that had these high-risk jobs, high-risk of injury, right? And so there was this entity I worked for. There were 16 organizations that did the physical ability testing for these nine really high-risk jobs. And then there were about another 15 to 20 that said, no, we don't want to do the physical ability. ROI is where I'm going to go to with this analogy, right? Because I proved prevention work. Granted, it was all retrospective because this physical ability testing program had been implemented for at least 10 years, if not 15 years. So I had thousands and thousands and thousands of records of people passing and failing this physical ability test, which there was a validation study and a cutoff score was established for different for different positions, right? So what was interesting is a data guy, right? Which I told you in my master's program, I started doing database development and it's a whole other side story, right? But I was a data guy, and I was really like organizing information because then you could run some really cool reports and it's like, wow, these numbers potentially are meaningful. And I'd go to people, the chief executive officer, is this meaningful? And it's like, oh, Mark, I can make some really good decisions off of this. So, what I did for this physical ability testing database that I built is I asked the chief executive officer, Hey, can I connect the people in this physical ability database to the claims database over here? I want to run a report. And I want to see if anybody that sits over here actually ever got over here. He said, well, Yeah, Mark, that's actually a really interesting question. So, I ran the report, John, and interestingly enough, there were some people that resided over in this physical ability data set that actually ended up over here. The story is, is that the people that passed the physical ability test ended up over here, and they were commonly associated with the entity that they were taking the test for, still, so what was interesting is that their claims, their injury claims, were really low cost. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. What does that mean? Well, let's just throw a number out there, like five, ten thousand dollar claims. Hmm. The people that were in the physical ability test database, they ended up over here in this other claims database. Interestingly enough, they were with the same organization, so they had changed. They had circumvented the policy of having to pass a physical ability test for the same role. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, their claims were more expensive. Not just a couple of dollars. I'm talking hundreds of thousands of dollars.
0: Wow.
1: Now, we could go down to why. What? Is the reason, et cetera. It's not the moral of this story. It's so a we'll return on investment. And with that data set, I proved that prevention works. We should be doing this physical ability testing test for all of the people that are part of this larger organization. And so now when we look at tactical operators, what's your ROI? I am going to implement a human performance program. I am going to try and optimize the performance so that they're always performing really, really well at whatever tasks that they're gonna do. I learned this in the military too and applied it. We don't want men and women pilots to crash jets. Why? Because it's expensive, right? The jet's expensive. And human life is expensive. And I even use, used to make this analogy. What's more expensive, the jet or you from an insurance standpoint? The jet. But your life value, the value that we give it, that's, that's priceless, mm-hmm. and we cannot put a value on that. So how do I get you home safely from whatever it is that you're putting your life at risk to do? That's where your return on investment is. So we can always put a number by it and a dollar sign, right? Whatever the organization's return on investment is, but from a special operations commands and there are five tenants, number one, human value over hardware value. God, Doggone it. How do I get you home? How do I make sure you come back? By the way, not everybody's coming back. It's usually not the case, right? That, to me, is where you begin to build that return on investment. So we're doing it in the sports industry. How do I minimize injuries? Right, An injury has a cost to it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It has an upfront cost, a long-term cost, and a cost of lost revenue. So to me, that's part of the elements of the question that are going to build your program substantiation. And the word I'm going to use is efficacy. Right. Zero is probably not a reasonable number to establish efficacy. Zero injuries, zero losses and limited duty. No, that's that's silly. You're going to have some. The, how do I prevent an acute ankle? Wall? It's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're carrying a load you've never carried before. You're in an area that you've never seen. You're going to probably roll an ankle on uneven terrain. So you're, the, the organization we go military, if they have collected historical data, know that that historical data probably has flaws in it. It's dirty. It's not clean. It's not as clean as you're gonna want it to be,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but you're gonna need to go back and include it, analyze it. And as the data scientist that I was in the past, every data set that you present has caveats just like the data set that we have in our thesis projects and our dissertations right there are a list of assumptions and those lists of assumptions right are probably flaws in our line of questioning there are flaws in the data set and if we want to improve the next iteration of that data set future data then we need to collect the data with different standard operating procedures to help improve what our ROI is and establish changes to improve efficacy in our human performance program.
0: That's a great way to, to round out there as well, Mark. And I've seen a lot within the tactical space and obviously into sport now as well. And I think it's from my perspective as well like obviously as coaches we are very humanistic and we have a connection with people but then like you say it's seen it from an organizational level from the bigger picture side of things of the ROI on your time spent or that organization hiring you in to help do the, the job and it's just like great you know what have you done it's like well well I got uh, Bill and Jim to run faster it's like great what does that mean for us whereas you turn around like look You guys have had 30% less uh, days lost due to injury that saved you X amount of dollars sort of thing. And that's where we need to go with it more so to get that buy-in factor, I think is huge.
1: It absolutely 100% is how you build your ROI. And I have examples, but I just probably shouldn't share them. There is a publication that's out on PubMed Mm -hmm. um, and it was how to evaluate the total force fitness, our Department of Defense's young burgeoning human performance program. That's not actually a program of record, but it's an idea that came out of the Chairman Joint Chiefs of Staff down in 2011. And really what it does is it helps establish the report. John, there should be a report that's run either monthly, quarterly, Annually, mm-hmm. the metrics should be exactly the same, more than likely, right? There's a dollar value, there's a time value, and then there's a numbers value, right? But they're all qualities, or I should say quantities, that we, as human beings, get to establish the quality, the descriptive, the yeah. narrative of the story. This is good, this is bad. We don't need to invent the we. We need to re envision the wheel and how we can use it better. Yeah. And so I 100% agree, like limited duty days and the cost for that, that's going to be different for every organization. But we know what limited duty days are, and we know that there's a cost associated with every hour that's lost for that duty day.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, in my mind, I would. Approach the problem in developing a human performance program to also include mishaps. I was in the Air Force and air, a, a, air aircraft mishap investigator. Right, I went to a school for a number of, of weeks to perform investigations for mishaps for accidents. Hindsight's twenty twenty woulda, shoulda, coulda. So if we can prevent things from happening, like if we, if I could spend an hour with 20 people as a tactical strength and conditioning coach and teach them center of mass, base of support, right? How our body reacts to gravity, mm-hmm. right? Those fundamentals, about where our feet are, where our hands are, where the load is on you and how you could use that information to plan out and to understand when you're weak and fatigued to mitigate an injury, to help potentially mitigate an injury, then I, I would have done my job as a tactical strength and conditioning coach in teaching you about your body. But how many times do you think I mean, we don't even do it, and I'm going to say in the military. How many times do you think in the military we're actually teaching somebody about base support, center of gravity, in a, in a full body squat, right? Most people probably don't even have a range of motion to do it properly, like an Olympic weightlifter, but, but they should. We don't even do it in normal, everyday life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's it's mishaps, accidents. Go back to that. And and why I say that is that's where prevention comes from, right? We in the military learned in the aviation environment that G-induced loss of consciousness is a big deal, right? Blood flowing away from the head is a common occurrence. And there's, there's an article that was published by Kent Gillingham that told the Strategic Air Command of the Air Force in the 70s that their fielding that the F-15 was going to cause G-induced loss of consciousness. And he asked the question, how many planes is it going to take and the cost of the pilot and those aircraft for you to change your education and training pipeline to include G-training, human centrifugation, right? Kent Gillingham a mishap expert because he was a flight medicine physician mm-hmm. in the Air Force. And Do you know that in the previous publication that he made, Aer- Aerospace Medicine uh, Association's publication at the time, I think it was, Aer- I can't remember the journal that was called back in those days. I have the article. But his his statement was this, oh, it looks like, two aircraft mishaps in less than 30 days has provided enough motivation for strategic air command to begin G-induced loss of training. so they change your training and education based on that. Yeah. We can do the same for ground-based terrestrial work too.
0: That's interesting to see and just, yeah. And by the way, this
1: is not top secret information. This is public knowledge.
0: It's, it's like you say, Mark. It's just like, you know, the hindsight is 2020 being able to look back like, oh, well, we should have probably implemented something around this beforehand. But then it takes someone special. He's in there, Ted, who's just looking ahead and blight like, right, this is what the cost is going to be. This is what we're looking down the barrel. Of. Let's try and be proactive rather than reactive to this.
1: Yeah. And not that you're going to prevent every mishap.
0: No, we're still no, going to no, have absolutely. accidents. Yeah. Well, I mean, this has been a really awesome philosophical chat with you, Mark. Uh, one, I'm really interested to hear your opinions on this. So everyone I have coming on the show, I'm always interested to know what they engage in for their own education or development. So with that, you give us either a book, an app, or a website you've personally found useful for your own development or your own education.
1: So i want to restate that you asked what website was important for my educational development?
0: Yep, either a website, a book, or an app
1: website is, is PubMed. <laughs> um, and quite honestly, I guess I, I'm using that as this overarching umbrella. You have to read, mm-hmm. you have to read and read everything. And you don't sit down and read everything all at once, but you have to read, you have to take in information, John. And quite honestly, if I was gonna give somebody advice, Realize that, huh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pull one of my favorite uh, books. Here. No. Realize, right, is Marcus Aurelius' meditations, right? The Stoics had a way of teaching young, burgeoning members of society in an education and training pathway about contemplation. Nobody is walking around with this mug of absolute truth here. Here's truth. Here's all the truth you need. I know all the answers So every peer reviewed publication. It is not the final say, so what we think we know. So what you need to be able to do is go out and learn mm-hmm. and discern and assimilate and critically think and develop ideas on your own. The moment that that is taken away from you, then we are nothing more than sheep following other sheep. right? So PubMed, look at these peer-reviewed science, scientifically peer-reviewed publications, understand that they need to be assessed on accuracy, validity, and reliability, Mm -hmm. and repeatability. Repeatability. We have gotten into this mindset as scientists, John, that Well, oh, I have one publication and there it is. There's the absolute truth. And we just need to follow this. It's like, no, 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 no. Let's go back to the fundamental of frequentist versus Bayesian statistics. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You need to make sure that it's going to happen again. Probability, guys, we're testing that in repeatability. So PubMed, uh, as an exercise physiologist, this is one of my new favorite ones. History of Exercise Physiology. The reason why I bring that book up, there is a reason that as we gain advanced degrees, the concept of background information and the construct of creating literature reviews are important. This guy, wonderful, Einstein. Trial and error is critical in the scientific method. And error is equally as important as the trial that was successful. If we can't learn from our history, then we're destined to make the same mistake Mm -hmm. over and over and over again. So the history of exercise physiology is a textbook that, quite honestly, I think is separate than the topic of exercise physiology conducting the professional practice of measuring human physiological capacities and physical abilities, right? That is an exercise physiologist. Understanding the history of where we came from teaches us the errors that were made, the important ones, the important discoveries, and quite honestly, what I would consider what has been forgotten in history. So much of what is happening now, John, is we're replicating studies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We haven't learned from our mistakes in the past, or what was gleaned from us. So, that to me would be the other other book that I would push towards people. From social media and apps, I'm going to stay away from that. I'm old school, my friend. Paper.
0: That's all good, Mark. I mean, those are some solid resources right there off the bat, mate. So, thank you very much for that. As I've already said, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure just to get data lined up, to sit down and chat with you, mate. It's been really insightful. Anyone who's listening who either, you know, wants to get in touch uh, to find out a bit more about you or, you know, may have questions about anything we've talked about tonight, what's the best way they can do that? I'm on LinkedIn.
1: Okay. So you can look me up by Mark White or you could look up SARCumanperformance.com. That's a website. Um, and SAR Human Performance has its own LinkedIn page, and I can provide you with the URLs, John, so if you need it to make it in the post, at the very least, uh, you can that, do that on your website.
0: That'd be awesome, Mark, so we'll just pop all that along with your, your book recommendations now in the show notes, so anyone listening can just access straight away. So that's perfect. Thank you very much, Mark. Once again, mate, very, very uh, appreciative of your time. Thank you once again, Mark. John, I want to thank you.
1: you've interviewed me and you're putting me on a, a very esteemed list of people that you have interviewed on your podcast. I'm talking Brian Schilling, Mark Gable. There's a few other heavy hitters in there too. So, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and, and appreciate the time that you've taken to, to listen to my life story. I'd like to eventually uh, hear a little bit more about yours.
0: Perfect. We'll up the time, may That'd be great, Mark. Cheers, my friend. Cheers, buddy. You take care. Okay, guys, so that's another week's episode done and dusted. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I hope it gave you some new information or made you think a little bit more deeper into some of your practice or into different topics. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review. Um, It really means a lot to us, guys, and really helps bump up the podcast within the the rating scales as well. And once again, please make sure you pass this on to your colleagues, your friends who are in the performance space as well just help get this message out all right guys take care see you next week